I'm Alexandra Noel of CLS Farms in Yakima, Washington, and this is the Brewer to Brewer podcast from All About Beer. My guest is Kevin Davey, formerly of Wayfinder Beer, and he's here for a conversation that goes beyond the brew house and into topics that matter to brewing professionals and beer drinkers. Visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media. And to support journalism in the beer space, check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We'll get into it in just a moment, but first, this message. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Discover the advantage of using new and unique ingredients like lemon myrtle or lapsang shushan. First Tea has been working with brewers to introduce distinctive, high-quality botanicals for innovative craft beers. They focus on being direct, flexible, and fast. You can find more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting blog.firsttea.com. That's blog.firsttea.com. A bit about my guest today. Kevin Davey is a new school lager enthusiast based in the Pacific Northwest who pushes the envelope on what lager can be. After training at the World Brewing Academy that shares locations in both Chicago and Munich, he went on to become lead brewer at Chuckanut in Bellingham, Washington, some of the best loggers in the world, and helped the team to win Small Brewing Company of the Year at the Great American Beer Festival in 2011. After racking up many medals for small batch, authentic German-style beers, Kevin moved on to Firestone Walker, don't know if you guys have heard of them, in Paso Robles, California, to hone his craft at a regional craft brewery. Seattle called him home to the Northwest, so he landed as the head brewer of Gordon Biersch in a Pacific Place Mall, where he learned the taxing art of brew pub work. Kevin wrote this yeah, um, sure bio, <laughs> uh, but I can also attest, you know, any brew pub brewer, it is fairly taxing. Anyway, I will um, digress. Uh, but during that time, he won gold medals for Bach at the World Beer Cup in Hell as a GABF. Go, Kevin. And uh, he was then sought out to be the principal brewmaster and I guess founding brewmaster at Wayfinder Beer marrying his love of loggers and IPA, some of them cold, where he continues to innovate until two days from now, actually. Right. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, welcome, Kevin. I'm yeah. really excited to have you here right now. <laughs> I'm so glad you asked me to come on the podcast. <laughs> I feel like every time we get together, we end up chatting about beer for like, I don't know, 20 pints. It's Maybe true. Not. It's true. I think actually last time, the last few times we hung out was in Yakima and we were drinking wine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think everybody can see, but I'm in my man cave right now. And <laughs> there's just like, there's so much, I've got like a hundred bottles of wine behind me. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of dorky that way too. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if people know, but you know, Washington has really exceptional wine and we are there you know, seeking out the best hops in the world. Sorry to the rest of the world, but it's true. Um, but also the wine there is truly exceptional. And so I always love, you know, not only the focus on the ingredients, the key ingredients in our beers, but like really exceptional wines. Um, but we're not here to talk about wine, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, but I have so, you know, you have a really amazing um, bio and you've worked in so many different lager breweries. So I have to ask you, you started as a home brewer, correct? Like we've had this conversation yeah. before. Did you have a focus on lager beer as a home brewer? Like where did this obsession with lager come from? It will, you know, okay. So I think I'm like kind of lucky in that when I was home brewing in Seattle, I started in like 2002 or three. And there was already so, such an awesome beer scene in Seattle. And same with Portland too. And Portland's only three hours away. I grew up in the Portland suburbs. 
So I'd go back down and visit my mom and stuff like that. And me and my friends would go to John's Market and go to all these cool bottle shops and um, and go to pubs and brew pubs and stuff like that. And so when I was when I got into home brewing, I didn't want to brew IPA. I didn't want to brew amber ale or or whatever was trendy at the time. I wanted to brew stuff that we could only get from Europe. And uh, because it was expensive and it was exciting. I think that a lot of, I think a lot of people kind of forget that the early, the, the mid 2000s Belgian beer was like super exciting. It was, so I, did a I lot remember. Of... <laughs> <laughs> we got some codgers on the, on the, <laughs> the show or some of the listeners that can can test to this and and it's it's kind of amazing how much that like fell off like uh people just just don't do it anymore i know but yeah it was belgian beer and german lagers you know um you just couldn't you could go to a brew pub or a nice tap room but you just couldn't really find anything other than imports so that meant i wanted to see if i could figure out how to brew it myself so yeah i had a huge focus on lager beer and, and I mean, Ben, you think about it from the other side, like even as a consumer, and I think a lot of newer consumers don't quite understand how old the beer is that's coming over from Europe and, and maybe it wasn't shipped the best or stored the best or sat on a warm shelf for a while. And you're not really even getting the best representation of what that could be, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, drinking fresh lager in like going to Augustiner and sitting there and drinking way more, more Hellas than you probably should, you know, it's a way different experience just in terms of like the sensory aspects of the beer and how it comes across so yeah i totally get that i guess if you can do it do it yourself right i know everybody wants to talk about lager beer because i i mean that's what my focus has been <laughs> but um i remember when i was in siebel we ended up going through belgium and um netherlands and stuff like that and having Westmall triple just Westmall yeah. triple fresh i was like yeah. i can't believe how hoppy this beer is i can't yeah. believe how floral it is like by the time it gets to seattle when i, w- I was living in seattle at the time it's all gone, you know, yeah. and to have those beers fresh was just eye-opening, and especially German lagers, because there was like a chain of uh, German pubs, German-style pubs in the Seattle area called Prost, mm-hmm. and uh, that's where I went all the time, so shout out to Chris Navarro if he's ever listening, but, you know, we're drinking Bitburgers, we're drinking Francis Connor, we're drinking Wannerstefen, uh, you know, like, and it when I got back from Europe, I went to a Prost, and I'm like, I can't drink this anymore. Mm-mm, forever, <laughs> forever ruined. Yeah, completely ruined. I still, like, I have a similar, well, really, I think I cried the first time I drank a fresh Augustiner, and then I proceeded to have, like, three more <laughs> um, liters, right? But uh, I still remember, so I, I was just, like, I love Belgian beer, and I still love Belgian beers, and I was a bartender at Beer Revolution in Oakland for a little while while I was working at Moylan's and Drake's, just to, you know, brewers don't really make a lot of money. A lot of us need second jobs. Right. So uh, we had... Uh, Hublon Schuf, right? A Belgian mm-hmm. double IPA from Brasserie de Schuf on top. And I still loved it then, but I was fortunate enough to be able to go visit the brewery. And I still remember my first fresh pour of Hublon Schuf. And I was like, is this what it tasted like all yeah. this time? And yeah. I wept. I wept. It was so yeah. good. That yeah. was a moment. I think when you cry over your beer because it's so beautiful, that's maybe how you realize that brewing is probably your thing. Yeah, it's probably your thing, though. <laughs> Some okay. of us like just sit there and re- write poetry about it, you know, but I, so I do like a good haiku and I don't know if you remember, there used to be a beer Twitter, like a Twitter account called beer yeah. haikus. And yeah. I don't know if that still exists. Cause I can't have been on Twitter in a very long time, but beer haiku, man, let's bring it back. If it isn't, if it's gone. Yeah. Um, totally. So, okay. So if you're a home brewer and you get into the professional world, um, what, where did you finally get like, 
creative reign to do whatever you wanted. I mean, frankly, it was Gordon Biersch. I mean, not yeah. whatever I wanted. They were, they were very strict brewery. Like you need to brew it like this and this and this and this. Um, but yeah, the, we had seasonals and we had to suggest, you know, I, it's kind of funny because like in for lager beer, they're like, well, you can't brew exactly the way you want to. And I'm like, well, yeah, but I'm going to use Weirman Pilsner and um, Halatau Hertzbrucker and 3470. I'm like, this is exactly how I do want to brew it, actually. <laughs> so that was exciting. Like, I didn't really want to change the recipes at Gordon Biersch at all. I really loved those beers. Uh, lager beer is so much more about execution and technique than it is um, than it is just just recipe driven. And I I I feel like there's two types of brewers in the world. There's people that are far more recipe driven, and there's brewers that are far more uh, process driven. And the best are kind of using both and doing both at the same time. But there's definitely people that like focus more on, hey, if this beer isn't, you know, it's it's not malty enough, so I'm going to add carapils or something like that. Well, there's other ways to get that maltiness, you know what I mean? And uh, as I think that that is kind of like that's always been my approach to to making beer is okay. Well, how do we how do we make a beer that we we know the parameter, but how do you make the beer authentic and um, the way that you want it within the parameter? How do you think inside the box to make a beer taste even more phenomenal? So really, I mean, like my question, which we've already dug into, is really like like let's talk about your recipe formulation. Where do you find your inspiration when it comes to new beers? And you've already now stated it's process driven, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Think, yeah. Uh, That's not the common answer, right? <laughs> no, it's not. I think it, <laughs> and there's, I think that I don't want to like poo poo the other way of doing it. I mean, no, because I, mean, I do it the other way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm very, I'm a very uh, ingredient driven recipe formulator, but you know what? Let's, you know, go, go on, go on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I will give you any recipe of any beer we make. I'll be like, here you go. This is this is what goes in it. Feel free to That's try fine. to do it. You know, <laughs> like because a lot of them like the like our uh like Wayfinders Hell, it's Barka Pilsner, Hertzbrucker, and Perla. Yeah. With 3470. Feel free. You Good know, I'll tell you the original gravity. <laughs> if you can do it, you know, like I well, I mean. I'm not that sounds like a little bit like I'm full of mess. <laughs> I don't mean it like that. I mean like the the way to make it taste the way that we do it is all is mostly process oriented. So um I um yeah, I think that when it comes to actually like recipe formulation, I'm looking more at like um traditional ways of making beer. Like um I don't I don't think that American craft brewers had it all figured out. When I was going to Siebel and Dumans and stuff like that. I didn't think like, well, that sure, that's the way they used to do it. But hey, we've got this like way cooler way of doing everything now. We don't need to do any of the old authentic ways of doing it because part of my, my logical reasoning part of it is, well, if you always did what you always done, you'll always get what you always got. So if I get the ingredients and I manipulate my water correctly and I use the yeast the way they use their yeast and I you know ferment it the way that they ferment it, I should get closer to what they're doing. So those beers that I absolutely love from Germany, I want to emulate them. So I'm not going to try to brew like an American. I'm going to try to brew like a German. Like what would a German do in here? You know, and a lot of that is the Reinheitsgebot. You know, we had to do that 
we had to study the Reinhardt Kibbutz at Dumans, and um, then it was uh, Gordon Biersch was also Reinhardt Kibbutz Brewery, so you weren't allowed to use things that were not Reinhardt Kibbutz. You could you could still make beer, and there is still creativity within those parameters. Well, yeah, but, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's believe one of the it or not. <laughs> believe it or not. I, it's kind of like one of my favorite Will Kemper quotes, which was, uh, you know, American craft brewers have no problem thinking outside the box, but they kind of have a hard time thinking inside the box. Like, if your Kolsch doesn't taste right, don't add oats to fix it, or don't, you know, like, don't add lime. Try to make your Kolsch better, yeah. because Kolsch already exists as a wonderful beer, you know, yeah. and if you can one just One of my do favorites, it, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, so that's I, my, I that's remember... My I had a conversation with Will and Mari from Chuck and I. They were in LA for the Pills and Love Festival, Barstow Walker, and they got a, a chance to try my Kolsch. And they're like, Alex, we would never share our yeast with anyone else, but if you want our yeast, you can have it. And I think it was that <laughs> previous year at GABF that they took the gold in the Kolsch category and I took the silver. And I hey. think, all thank you. Yeah, <laughs> nice. I got it, I got it. But I feel like the only reason why I was not bummed about not getting gold in that category is because Chuck and I got the gold. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's a really nice thing, right? You know, like- Right, yeah, yeah. It usually, it's, sometimes it's kind of like head scratching the other way. You're like, wait, did that guy win? <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, we're uh, judges, we're both judges, right? Yeah. So- We know what um, it's like. Will you be judging the World Beer Cup? I am not this year. I'm taking some judging off. Uh, I should, if Chris Williams is listening, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I, I, we, I judged a lot of pastry beer last year and stuff like that. <laughs> and no offense, everybody. I just can't do it. I just can't. I got to take a year off. I can't. You know, you can tell them you don't want to judge those categories, right? Yeah. Yeah. I like, know. You know, but you need I, to be, you need to be like, you know, you need to be helpful, you know, like we're out there to, do a job you know and yeah. i'm not i don't i i know that the, i i would say like oh I, I don't want to do these i don't want to do these i don't want to do these but at the end of the day like if he sticks me on the table i gotta do it yeah <laughs> but, i'm pretty i'm pretty open about stuff and the one category that lives actually a couple categories that i see every single year and i'm wondering if i'm gonna get them at the world beer cup but chili beer mm -hmm. and, and i remember asking chris Swarzy, i was like there's some rhyme or reason to why i'm always on the chili beer categories and he's like <laughs> well you ne you never complained about it and I'm yeah. like, no because why do and then i also judge smoke beer pretty regularly nice and i enjoy judging that category a lot um i've yet to get a no i was on one metal round for smoked beer but i was doing a lot of first and second rounds on those but that's fine you know, I did a lot of pumpkin beer, and uh, people don't know this about me, but I'm a huge pumpkin beer enthusiast. I did not know that. And most people would think it's kind of dumb, you know, like, oh, pumpkin beer sucks or whatever. And I, I, I feel like pumpkin beer is like musical theater. It's like when you turn it on or you start watching it, you know, like, oh, this is really cheesy. And then you start looking around, you're like, I shouldn't like this, right? Uh... <laughs> and it's just, I don't know why. It's uh, so, I like how silly it is. I like how do you praise you praise the time of the year when the pumpkin spice latte returns to Starbucks? Are you like first in line mm. for your for, Kevin's first in line for his PSL? <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah, I get my Uggs on and oh, yes, uh, I go do. out to the I go out <laughs> to the hay rides and my pumpkin spice latte. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Ew! Uh, no offense to the pumpkin spice latte lovers out there. I'm just not one of them. Mm. Um, okay. Well, you know, 
So let's get a little technical on some stuff. Um, we were kind of talking the other day about you were spending some time in Bellingham and drinking a lot of lager beers. And, and I, I'd really like to spend some time talking about mashing techniques because you went right. off on these things. And, you know, that really comes down to brewing technique and doing things like a German one. Right, right. So let's let's kind of dig into this a little bit. I mean, what's your anger with single infusion mashing? <laughs> where where what, does it come from? Well, I think that American Craft Brew, and I, I I I feel like it just because brewing literature was all written in English, you know, that we could read, and so we think of beer as being very English in its beginning. Craft beer was kind of like, in its roots, was kind of emulating. English style beer, English Cascade and stuff like that. And that's wonderful. I think that that's a wonderful thing for like, um, if you have these malts that are grown and made for single infusion mashing, it's things like Golden Promise and Maris Otter and some of these other malts. And if you're using an original gravity of 10 Play-Doh, um, nine Play-Doh, and um, you're including a certain amount of caramel malt, and you're trying to make something really flavorful in that regard, I think it's, I think it's, um, it can be a wonderful thing. However, I don't think it really translates really well to what our farmers are growing here in the States. Um, I've always, it's always been a head scratcher for me because the, in parts of the literature, it says, oh, you know, everything's great for single infusion mashing. However, American brewers found that their barley was too proteinous and they were mixing corn and rice in it to make it emulate German malt better. And, uh, there's nowhere where it says, oh, that stopped. <laughs> you know, nobody, no, it's not like in 1960, they said, oh, you know what? We're going to make, we're going to grow our malt. We're going to um, grow varieties that are much more like Maris Otter. We're going to grow varieties that are low protein and easy flavor and good extract. And they're suitable for uh, single infusion mashing. In fact, the opposite happened. They started growing more and more barleys that are higher protein that have a higher Kohlbach index just to get them through a louder ton because you have to break down a certain amount of the beta-glucan um, as a maltster in the germ process just to get just to get the barley to be malted. <laughs> you know what I mean? And these malts that we grow in the States, I think need to be step mashed. They're also very hot malts. So you can you can definitely get them done in, in a single infusion mash, but I don't believe that they're really built for their flavor. And um, I don't, I, I'm in the belief that if you have a mash mixer and uh, a mash ton that you should be using it. Um, that's been the flavor profile of Wayfinder and um, definitely every brewery I've been to, or I've been, I've been working at, I, I, I have the privilege of never brewing on a single infusion brew system. So Chuck and at Firestone and Gordon Pearson, now Wayfinder as well, all mash mixer, mash tons. So and like, utilizing it. Yeah, and I understand that. And, you know, the difference between American engineered or even like American engineered, Chinese built, German engineered, German built, whatever. Um, but like, so what is it in the beers that you're getting? Like, let's talk about like the sensory aspects of it. What in the profile is turning you off to the point where you're like, this is not how it should be done. We need to do this better. You know, I, I think that there is so much more work that we can do as American craft brewers in this regard. I, I wonder if, so I don't, I don't scientifically, I don't really know, you know, scientifically, I don't have a lot of papers proving like, all right, if you do a protein rest and you break down 
um, and, and really focus on beta amylase instead of just alpha amylase or a combination of the two that you're going to get these kind of uh, flavor profiles in your uh, finished beer. But I can tell you anecdotally, and I can tell you from the beers that I try, especially this last season of malt, of malt where we really just had really high proteins. And, and um, piss poor yield. And piss poor yield and just, just really <laughs> crummy barley to brew with. Yeah. That the brewers that are step mashing these malts, the beers are tasting better. And yeah. um, the brewers that are not um, are are struggling. They're having they're having um, off flavor, and some of it is whether it's DMS or it's kind of this. Um, it has like this. Uh, there's sensory wise. I I haven't been able to pinpoint. I've been able to say like, oh, this is that flavor, but I can't tell you exactly what it is. I was on a judging table once with Kim from um, the QC manager at Sierra Nevada, and she was saying that oh, that flavor is from really high SO2. And when you have that really high SO2 spike, it kind of has that um, rancid peanut shell flavor. Mm. And maybe that is, you know, and when you think about barley, um, you when you're taking barley, making it into malt, and then brewing it into wort, you're trying to make a, as a brewer, and, and your maltster too, we're connected. We're trying to make something that the yeast is really loving to, to chew on and eat and make wonderful beer you know what i mean and so if you have something that has too much if you're trying so imagine it is like a big plate of food if you have something that is just rice you know it is boring and it doesn't finish even though it finishes most of it it doesn't it's it it it, it it's gassy you know it, it some yeasts just like some barley's a little bit more you know mm. um you want to have a balanced meal in there and that's kind of our job so even though you will say if you're starting if you're starting at 12 Play-Doh and you're finishing at 2.1, hey, I got to the finish line. But that doesn't mean it doesn't mean you got where you wanted to go. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it it does matter um what you started with, what the the amount of maltose that you have, the amount of protein, the amount of um beta gluconotrepid gums that you have in that malt translate to the finished product. And um, so even if you're getting to that finish finish line i think that there's there's room to make the beer taste better in by mashing and i mean that's what i believe so everybody out there prove me wrong um <laughs> please do it, i'm not trying to crap on single infusion mashing completely i think that there's some amazing single infusion mashed beers i think that most of them would taste better if they did a step on them are you uh, stepping ipas too absolutely yeah we step everything everything, everything. Yeah just because of the barley quality. And so like, where were you getting most of your malt from at Wayfinder? Um, so the fun thing about Wayfinder is that we've been using a lot of base malts for different beer styles. We don't have a silo, we don't have a grist case even. Um, so when I'm when I'm engineering these beers, it's like, well, if we're gonna make a Vienna, we're gonna use Vienna. And if we're gonna make a Czech beer, we're gonna use Czech malt. And if we're gonna use, if we're gonna make uh, our party time Pilsner, we're gonna use Barca Pilsner. You know, and that's that's been fun. Our yields have been kind of all over the place because you are constantly you are changing things. the base. Yeah. yeah, but we're we're ten barrel <laughs> system, so it's like okay, eh, we're all a little bit off, a little bit not. You know, we brew higher gravity and dilute down and, and get it to where we want it to be. Um, and so is there a little bit of loss? Sure, but I think it tastes like a more authentic thing. So we do use um, a lot of the Wireman products, a lot of the Wireman base malts, and we use a lot of Great Western. Superior Pilsner is our um, base ale malt. 
okay. um, for all ales. Yeah, I guess that's the beauty of being really close to Great Western as well, right? Oh, well, we're close to BSG and Great Western. We can literally, <laughs> I drive and pick it up in the, in the truck. <laughs> and and most, so, most Portland brewers do. Yeah, well, but, but Great Western has like an innovation lab. And are they actually running operations in Vancouver? Or is it just like bagging? I've never been a Great Western customer. Oh, yeah, that's the whole, I've, you know, I've never been there either. I've never been through there. But yeah, it's the whole multi facilities down there on the port. That's really cool. Yeah, I really like that. I mean, um, I'm in Northern Kentucky now, and we have a small maltster in Ohio called Origin Malt, and they're doing all um, Ohio-grown barleys, which I think is really interesting. Um, and then, you know, they're, they're, they don't have a malt house in Ohio yet. They're sending everything to proximity in like Delaware and bringing it back. But it's still not that far. But I'm always interested in bringing the barley closer if the quality dictates doing something like that, right? Um, right. Yeah, it, it wasn't. It's kind of interesting because, like, you're like, okay, I'm going to use Great Western because they're just across the river from me. But is Great Western is what I'm buying from Great Western? Is it all from, you know, no? no. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a global commodity, so no, buying yeah. barley from North Dakota and from even exactly. from Europe and blending and, it. All. And when, yeah, when we were brewing, when I was brewing at Three Weavers, I was a brewmaster for a long time, um, Kolsch was still a very large portion of the core portfolio there. And I wish I could have, you know, we trialed some American malts in our Kolsch, but it just wasn't the same as buying German ingredients, right? And I right. know the, the footprint and there's a, you know, limitation on sustainability on stuff like that when you're now bringing things across well all of our stuff went through the panama canal to los angeles right. and we would get containers um from bamberg but you know i just you try but at, at the end of the day when you're truly obsessed with your craft and and really at the end of the line it's about the flavor right, right. You're well gonna, you have to identify who you are right like yeah. if, if, are you a boutique brewer that um makes small authentic things or are you a regional brewer are you somebody who is making something for all the grocery stores that is everybody should be able to enjoy, well, then maybe you should be using something that is more locally driven and less of a carbon footprint because you're making a lot of it. Um, that, that gets, that gets really funny. I, I think that if you could make, if you could make like a party time pills with local malts, I would, I would make the switch immediately. Like yeah. I'm not, I'm not spending the extra 30 cents a pound for fun. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I've, I've always kind of dreamt of that concept. And you see these smaller breweries opening you know, they have this dream of being in a state brewery and they're going to grow their own hops and their, their barley and stuff. And I'm like, you didn't really think too far ahead on that, did you? Like, are you going to be able to produce enough your brewery? Like, right. are you making like a one barrel batch a week at that, you know? Um, and I love the idea. It's very inherently romantic um, to bring things closer to home. But I don't know. I, it's We still haven't quite gotten there. Maybe we should just all start making cider. <laughs> well, especially here in the Northwest. <laughs> And we grow most of the apples over here between uh, Red River and <laughs> We're all moving to Washington and we're all making cider. Yeah, we're all making hopped cider. Yeah. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> it, you know, I, I, I think that like, well, part of the problem with American malt in general is that what, what seed we put in the ground is based on um, our breeding programs, which are run through the university. And from from what I've heard is most the um, the breeding programs in Europe and especially are uh, in Germany are, are uh, privatized and they're they're driven by the businesses and the German brewers are in the, in the driving seat of that. 
So it's not the farmers and it's not the maltsters, it's German brewers saying we want these specs because we want to brew the beer that we want to brew. Um, and that means that the yields are less and that means that they cost a little bit more maybe. Um, but we don't even really have that option here. It's not like you can just go buy some Maris Otter grown in Washington state and say, hey, I would love a 9% Maris Otter grown here. No, you can't. You can't get it. They don't. They won't do it. So there's also, you know, an agreement in the malting in AMBA of, you know, the, the breeds that are coming out are going to be four-day germination breeds. And so making, or four or three, I, I think, be better to have a maltster on, <laughs> but they might not want to self-condemn themselves as much as I'm willing to do it. Yeah. But having a longer germination period and really developing some more flavor in your barley does matter. And um, I think that you, you look at like Czech malt and they're like five to seven day germ periods. And those are a more complex barley. More complex I think barley. it's interesting when you call out um, these sort of public breeding attempts versus privatized breeding attempts, because you can do a lot of like correlation between that and the hop industry as well. And yep. I'm a huge proponent of American public hop varieties, but if you look at what's happening in the private side of breeding and the hops that are coming out of the private programs are far more exciting, right? right. And they don't often, I mean, agronomics are definitely important and viral loads and things like that, but they're in a position where, you know, they can charge a premium price for a premium product that may not have quite as good yields, but it sure as hell is incredibly impactful in your beer. Um, and so it's, it really, it seems like that's kind of the approach to what's happening with, with um, barley breeding in Europe. And, you know, maybe we should have some small privatized, is, is there private barley breeding? There is no private barley breeding in the U.S., is there? I don't know. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I, you know, somebody should text in or email in and, and tell someone us about some of that. Someone ask Mallet, like, can we, yeah. someone ask Sean Mallet about this, please. I because, I mean, you look at like some of the, some of the hops that, you know, people actually want to brew beer with. And if the farmers had their choice, they wouldn't grow Centennial. They would, they would jump yeah. right to Strata, you know, or something early, you know, and, um, or, or whatever, you know, not every, not every hop is, is created equal, but man, do we as brewers really like some of them, whether the farmer wants, wants them or not, you know? Like, I know, I know. And, you know, I obviously, I do a lot of work um, for CLS Farms and CLS is one of the largest centennial growers in the world. So I can never say that the grower doesn't want to grow centennial. We grow <laughs> a lot of centennial and we grow it very, very well. Um, although last year was a hard year, but a hard, it was a hard year for a lot of varieties. It's a very interesting, interesting um, all around and not even just in like beer related stuff but in in other commodity crops as well it seemed like right. everyone had just a very hard late growing season last year so we'll see i mean there are daffodils coming out of the ground in kentucky right now and it's not even march we're recording this just before the beginning of march um it's there's snow on the ground in mcminnville right it's snowing right now as we speak. uh-huh yeah, yeah it's great yeah it's gonna be 71 degrees fahrenheit here tomorrow um and uh <laughs> So I think it might be another weird year. We'll see. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think that the, you know, farming practice and some those are things that we all need to think about. Now, one of the one of the things that I would challenge brewers is is if if okay, so you got to work with what you've got. I mean, these American brewers in the 1800s and, and early 1900s um found that their barley they found that brewing with rice and corn made a better product and it was a, for better or worse, it was a craft product. 
You know, they were the ones making the decision. It wasn't the malting companies. They were, if the malting companies have their way, they're going to have, they're only barley, only barley. And there's this, there's this thought that, you know, barley is more expensive. And if you're, you're at, you know, and then the Brewers Association has definitely pushed this for a long time since, since I've been in the beer industry is that you're adding corn and rice to cheapen the flavor, cheapen the product. And after I got into actually making adjunct beers, no, the corn and rice are far more expensive than barley, like by a lot. Rice in particular is three to four times the price. So using it, if anyone still use, if Budweiser is still using rice, which I'm assuming they are, it's it's an it's a it's a devotion they have to their craft. Um, I don't know how many crappers are left there. I think it's just bankers at this point. But <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> but. Um, you know, I think that if you could take, if we could take what farmers are growing right now, barley wise, and mix a certain amount of adjunct into it and emulate something like a Barca Pilsner, if we could do it, then it's on us to do it. You know, like we should yeah. be making these nice lagers with, with, um, with adjunct. It's an American tradition. It is an American tradition and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Like we can right. embrace something American. Yeah, Kevin. we don't have to just be Anglophiles. <laughs> I know, right? Um, hey, so we're going to take a short break for this message, and then we'll come right back for more of this conversation on rice and corn, I promise. Oh, very um, with, Ke with, with Kevin Davey, formerly of Wayfinder Beer. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Discover the advantage of using new and unique ingredients like lemon myrtle or lapsang shushong. First Tea has been working with brewers to introduce distinctive, high-quality botanicals for innovative craft beers. They focus on being direct, flexible, and fast. You can find more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting blog.firsttea.com. That's blog.firsttea.com. And uh, welcome back, everyone. Hi, Kevin. Hello. Uh, I really want to keep talking about the concept of using rice and corn in beer. And we're not even going to get on the cold IPA thing because I feel like you've talked about that enough. Um, you can use that as some reference point if you want. But, you know, I, I'm, and I'm not specifically a Budweiser drinker, but I love beer with rice in it. Right. I really do. It's so light. It's refreshing. It just has this very clean profile. And, you know, I think a lot of times... People are like, I put jasmine rice in this beer. And I'm like, okay, that's nice. But I think you missed the point of using rice right. as a nice, delicate sort of adjunct in your beer. But so like, where are you using these adjuncts the most? Um, so at Wayfinder, we've been, we have a cereal mash decoction ton. So we've actually been able to take raw product. And um, at the beginning, it was rice flour. We were using literally bags of rice flour. Um, and then moving on to a flaked rice, just because it was a lot less dusty, um, and, um, mashing it, bringing it to gelatinization rest, boiling it and adding it in as a step decoction. And that's been, that works great. And one of the things that, you know, when I was looking into doing some of these, so before cold IPA, what I really wanted to do was do adjunct brewing. And I've got friends, uh, from just being at GABF, like, uh, Troy Casey, when he was working at AC Golden. I reached out to some of these people like, hey, like, what do you guys do? And they're like, well, you know, we're a lot of us are using syrups, you know, and I'm like, well, 
what about what about cereal mashing? <laughs> like, does anybody do it still? And it's just so it it's just very very old school, and a lot of people are not doing cereal mashing anymore. And sadly, I didn't I didn't have any friends at August Shell. I should I should reach out to those people and just chat with them because I know that they're still doing a lot of cereal mashing. And so I believe Yingling is doing it as well. But um, um, reaching out to some people that have been in the industry, Troy's dad in particular, um, Greg Casey, um, and and also our I, re I was reaching out to a, a raw ingredient supplier and shout out to Dave Holland at Adams Grains in Sacramento. He used to work at uh, at Bud and at some of these other places, and th these guys would talk about the flavor profile of corn beers versus ripe beer, rice beers, and it is subtle, it is nuanced, and it's you know I think that from a brewer standpoint, it's kind of hard to talk about it because we make such hoppy IPA beer that those are not nuanced beers. Um, but there is something to be said about um, a beer made with twenty to thirty percent rice. It has like a very soft texture. There's a there's a there's a certain um, pillowiness of of mouthfeel and um, flavor. It actually led me into going down a rabbit hole in sake. And there's a local sake uh, brewer here in Oregon. So I, I've joined their club and I've been buying sakes and trying the different ones and different types of polish and and trying to learn more about rice itself. I love that. I um, So I lived in Berkeley for a while and there's a huge sake brewery there, Takara. Mm. I mean, they make shochikubai, right? You go into every Asian market that sells sake and you can get a, I don't know, 1.75 liter bottle for like $8. Hey. So it's, it's cheap. <laughs> That's what you see in a lot of American Japanese restaurants as well that don't specifically focus on like artisan sake. And I tried for years to get a tour of that place and they never let me. They, uh, they're like, here, come to this room, watch this video on sake making and it's people like right. wearing costumes and, you know, like pushing, pushing like old sort of equipment around. I was like, that's equipment from your museum. That's not actually happening inside there. Like, let me see the stainless. <laughs> but right. no, I think, yeah, I think that's awesome. Um, I've always been fascinated by rice in general corn not as much for some reason um but let's talk about brewing with corn too because you said that you find only really a, like a slight difference in profile between the two i feel like i pick up a big difference between corn and rice beers but maybe that's just based out of preference and we're talking about delicate beers we're not talking about things that are heavily hopped where really you're now just making right. considerations on like body and mouthfeel and stuff like that well so we make an american light lager or american I guess it would be premium lager. It's about four and a half percent at Wayfinder called number six. And uh, it's our only 12 ounce can. And I think we release like 40 barrels of it a year in the summertime. It's just kind of like a roadside crusher. Um, definitely like the best beer to float down the river on, which is what people do here in Oregon. There's a lot of rivers. And when it's hot out, we just get an inner tube and drink beer and float. Get into a very cold river. <laughs> yeah, we're we're absolutely insane. Yeah. but. We started with rice and then we moved to corn just because our rice supply got incredibly expensive. Rice has gone through um, kind of a big chain, change. And um, I found that um, the way that we process it, doing a decoction on the raw cereal, there is a difference, but I don't think it's as, as potent as if you're using like a, a, a flaked product and doing a single infusion mash. 
then I think that there's a very big difference. And I would actually suggest rice more. But with a flaked product, I would do some um, test test um, brews with it, even if it's just like on a little five-gallon system, and make sure that your torrified, or not torrified, your flaked rice is going through conversion. We had a really hard time. We tried to take our flaked rice and do single infusion with cold IPA, or even just step infusion. But um, the flaked rice that we were getting at the time, I believe was not, it was not pre-gelatinized. So we mm. would mash it and mash it and mash it for, uh, I think we went up to four hours and it was still iodine black, still iodine black. Wow. And we went to, we went to a local um, gluten-free brewery and borrowed, <laughs> borrowed a jug of enzyme and threw that in there. And then that, and that didn't work. So then we just dumped it. But um, so be careful because uh, the gelatinization temperature of rice is much higher than gelatinization of corn or sorghum or some of the other um, adjuncts that you can use and so the making sure that it actually is gelatinized is very important if not you got to boil it mm. um, or get it up to that high temperature and then boil it mm -hmm. and then i mean and well, now you're talking about system restraint too in a lot of breweries mm. <laughs> I, I i mean i kind of feel like if you're building a brewery right now in 2023 you should be installing a mash mixer i think yeah. that if uh, just because we're we're in a changing climate and the barley that you're going to get is going to be all over the map yeah. more often than not more i mean we're going to try to do what we can do as maltsters and as farmers and as as uh, the rest of the people in the industry but the more tools you have as a brewer is really important um and i would i would behoove anybody who's building a brew house right now to get into mashing why not Kevin, there's a lot Kevin. of literature on there like everything is every <sighs> Every German text, they, they're just assuming you're step nine. I'm pretty sure that at my next brewery, which is happening, um, I am going to have a mixer and I'm going to name it Kevin. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a cute name for a mixer. It's a, it's a cute name. I usually name pumps and things like that. I've never been the type of person to name vessels. I think vessels get numbers because right. you can track numbers better in like any sort of production management software. And that's not... That's not a slight on anyone who decides to give their vessels names. I've seen a lot of very <laughs> cute names in breweries where I like, you know, feel a little warm and fuzzy at your like, you know, your Wes Anderson themed cellar. But <laughs> I put I put numbers on my tank. Sorry, everyone. Um, but we will have a mash mixer named Kevin. I you can even just call the paddle Kevin. You can have the mixer being, oh, that's the mash done. But the paddle inside is Kevin. <laughs> it's acting up again. <laughs> Turn on, Kevin. Oh. He's got to get moving. <laughs> oh, man. That's going to be great. People are just going to be like, why do you keep shouting at Kevin? I'm like, he's not doing his job. He needs to move faster. Um, great. This is awesome. I need to write that down. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So, okay. I feel like we've talked about the barley and the adjunct sides, but I want to talk about hops because I feel like what would be a podcast that I'm on right. without talking about hops? Um, because I love them. And I know you love them too, but I think we take uh, maybe different perspectives on you are brewing a lot of IPA, but as a lager brewer, and I've been an IPA focused brewer for so many years, what I don't do is put a lot of stock into the European hot market, right? I mean, I understand what's going on from a business perspective and obviously, you know, from the, the scope of the overall market pressures, because that's just kind of the world that I live in now. However, like, let's, let's talk about what's happening in Germany. Last right. year, they had a terrible harvest. They've had continuously 
lower alphas on their hops. Over the last decade, there's been a steady decline in alpha acid content on German hops. In addition to that, they've been dealing with drought or with rain when they don't need the rain. In addition to that, energy costs are mm -hmm. going through the roof out there. And, you know, I've had friends who spent a lot of time in Germany last year, and they're having conversations with these small family farms. People have been growing hops for several hundred years, right? That's all they knew. That's what they know how to do. And they're like, we have to tell you the exact same week of harvest last year, this was our gas bill. Look at it now. It's three to right. four times. And like, how can, how can that be sustainable in any way? And I really don't see that slowing anytime soon. So let's, let's talk about that. Like, with well, what's I happening mean, the gas in the bill US? in particular, <laughs> that's the war in Ukraine and, and them cutting off Russian gas. Sure. Um, which is huge. And gas bills are going to go up higher, but hopefully with some good, uh, I don't want to get too much into politics, but hopefully yeah. uh, the Western, the Western um, nations and people that are pro-democracy mm -hmm. will continue to supply each other with energy. Let's hope. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but so like with the, with this, this logger revolution that's happening in the U S that it's continuing to pick, pick up momentum. I believe, I don't see any signs of it stopping, even though IPA is still like the single largest category in the craft market. And I think some of the most growth is shockingly coming through like Imperial IPA, but I'm pretty sure that's right. because Voodoo Ranger is doing so well in 19.2 ounce cans and C stores. Good for New Belgium on that, by right. the way. Whoever thought you could put that strong of beer to that big of a can, put it in a 7-Eleven and it just fails through the roof. But I mean, anyway. I, think I think that's actually kind of obvious. The, um, I, I kind of got a little sick seeing it uh, i went into a safeway in my local store and there's the regular craft section then there's an end cap fridge and it's just 19 twos and 24 ounce cans and um they're all imperial ipas and they all have the alcohol percentage on them and nobody in my opinion needs to drink i mean a can is a single serving you open yeah. the can you can't reseal it unlike a 40 of malt liquor where you can screw it and stick it back in the fridge yeah, I think it's I think having a nine nine percent beer and twenty four ounces of it is it's excessive. Frankly, a little inappropriate, but that's it's, just me. It's pure American excessive behavior, mm -hmm. but you know that's fine. Um, it's two three levers. There is a nineteen point two ounce can produced of expatriate IPA, but that was done primarily for like venues, right? When you go to a concert venue or to like a football stadium, and you don't necessarily want to stand up to go. Oh, yeah you know, back and buy beer constantly anyway. So there's a time and a place for it. But anyway, let's move back to German. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. I'm um, coming at you with the controversial opinions all the time. That's okay. I love it. See, like if people, I think, so I was really nervous to do this podcast because I was like, well, I know Kevin and I can like talk for a long time, but I want to stay on track. But this is what you get when Kevin and I sit down and hang out anyway. <laughs> like this is very much like how the conversation would typically go if we were sitting next to each other, drinking beer, at our friend's house, out in Natchez, Washington, right. you know, because right. that's exactly what we did last year. Shout out to Chris and Melissa. But yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, let's get back to this this like growth of lager and lager beer in the U.S. that is continuing, and it, finally, it's cool, mm -hmm. right? Um, but so, like, how do we mitigate this issue with European hops as the responsible brewers that we are? What are we going to do as we continue to put more and more stress on an already very strained hot market. In right. I think that it, it, it's interesting because um, the way that we think about barley growing and hop growing is very similar. We think about it in our terms and hop growers 
um, are now thinking in IPA terms for almost everything. Um, we're thinking about lower lower kiln temperatures, and this is a good thing. We're th you know, uh, there has been like the hot quality group. Uh, we've been pushing oils over alpha. This is important stuff. But in Germany and in Czech Republic and places like this, there the it's more of a, a historic. We grow we grow middle fruit. We grow sots because that's what we've always grown. And um, the research that's going into beer hops, going into hops is mainly IPA driven. So it is, thinking, it's aroma driven. It's, it's right aroma now driven. The, the focus is aroma. Yeah, it is. And if you look at Pilsner Raquel, they're not dry hopping Pilsner Raquel. They're not, they're not trying to get aroma off the Czech sots. They're trying to get polyphenol. And uh, they're, lo they're looking at Czech, they're looking at sots that have 20% beta. And um they're boiling them for 90 minutes or two hours. They're boiling the crap out of these really low alpha hops because that's where they get their flavor profile. And it's, and it's kind of, uh, it's very anti what we do as American IPA brewers. We're like, well, don't, don't boil it. At, don't boil it at all. Just cool it down and then <laughs> sprinkle a little in there and then put everything in the fermenter because that's where all the oil is. It's the absolute opposite in Europe or it has been historically. And maybe that's all changing too. And uh, I hope not. But you look at these, like, why doesn't, you know, why doesn't this one lager hop that, that Hopsteiner has been developing or this other lager hop that YCH has been developing or a hop quality or a hop um, HBC, why isn't it taking off? And I think a lot of the focus is, well, we're using the same, we're using the same parameters that we're using for IPA. And the way you make these beers is not the way that you make IPA. You no. know, um, you want to boil middle fruit. You want to boil sots. You know, you, you don't add it all at the whirlpool you don't dry hop it you don't dip hop it you don't do any of those things no and when it comes down to it too you have to look at like volume right of production and and just the volume of, of a hop that would go into a lager versus what's being used in ipas these days and mm -hmm. and you know bringing that back to the farm level i mean if the acreage isn't there it eventually goes away right so um i think that if if there's one thing i could say is you know Everybody go get some Mount Hood and Crystal and Willamette um, contracts and make sure that the farmers keep those in the in the field because some of those hop, a lot of those hops are wonderful in lager beer. Um, shout out to my partner Lisa because she makes a a really wonderful um, beer called Harvest Lager and she makes this right around. Uh, uh, we're in McMinnville, so we're in the wine country of Oregon, and it kind of is released during 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 a wine harvest and all the winemakers just guzzle that stuff down at the end of a shift if there is an end of a shift because when, making, when harvest is done they're all working 12 to 15 hour days and um, we're, we're just trying to get them a beer that that tastes good that they can drink a lot of and the harvest lager is it and it's just willamette um and it's oregon grown willamette i think it all comes from gail goshi but um i think that taking some of those older ways that we make beer or make lager beer which is literally and it, I feel weird to be on a podcast telling brewers, hey, boil your hops again, guys. <laughs> you heard it here. <laughs> How about when the wort starts going over, add some first wort hops. When the boil starts, add some hops, and then then you're done. <laughs> you know, like finish the boil and get it in but, the tank. But Kevin, what about the dry hop? Like what when do you put in what do you when do you put in the dry hop? <laughs> Don't, you know. <laughs> Try... And now this goes back to the whole like, how do you build a recipe? Um Paint with really broad strokes. Make one beer that's dry hopped like crazy and not hot, hot side hopped, and then make another beer that is only hot side hopped. Like, 
it's funny that we think that we're going to get categorically different flavored beers out of using the same process all the time, you know, like, and just changing the ingredient, change the process and the ingredients, change everything, you know, um, change the color, change the ABV, change the original gravity, change the final gravity, change it all. You and, know? Yeah. And, and, and let's be real about this. I think, what is it? Some ridiculous percentage of American craft brewers make like a thousand barrels or less a year. So yeah. they're tiny. They have the flexibility to play around with this. Maybe use a little less lactose and a little less organ fruit products. I love organ fruit products, but I mean, come on. Like every goes out there kind of tastes the same because they're all using the same concentrated aseptic prepackaged fruit products. Um, but yeah, experimentation with boiling your hops. Boiling your hops. Well, it's it's funny because it, it was like, oh, well, what do we do about this hop, you know, if you, or this hop crisis in Germany, it's like, well, if you're making a thousand barrels a year and um, 700 of it is IPA, you know, well, you're talking about 300 barrels of some lighter flavored beers, maybe a Kolsch, maybe a, a lager. I mean, we're talking about two boxes of Mount Hood, <laughs> you know, to get you through this thing. It's well, not, a, it's not, or maybe a little bit more than that, but it, we're not there, talking about massive volumes here. No, but there are still a lot of larger craft brewers that are relying heavily on European hops for their more traditional European style beers. Yes, um, some that I've worked at. <laughs> right, biggest, so hop buyer yeah. in the world of some. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you know, I mean, I, I'm not trying to tell people how to do their jobs, and certainly not how to write recipes. But I think that there should be a little bit more of a focus and a responsibility to maybe, I don't know, not tax the system in the way that they have been in, in certain ways. It's not to say, I mean, there's a, it's no secret now. There's been tons of um, articles and stuff released if you follow the hop world, but there's a huge overage in American hops, right? Um, yeah. And a lot of American aroma hops, and there's going to be a massive shift this year. One, acreage coming out of the ground. Haas says about 10,000 acres should come out of the ground. We think that there'll be probably more like 5,000 going idle because there's going to be a lot of shifts between aroma and alpha this year mm -hmm. to kind of help out the international alpha market because the German crops have been so bad. So there's some work being done on the transfer here, but it's, it's for different reasons, right? It's not, right. we are seeing some new sort of American lager hops coming out um, through innovation um, from the private breeding programs. And I think that that's really interesting to see, but I still think price points might be a little bit high on those because these privatized hops usually come at a much higher price um but i think there's a lot of room for experimentation with these new american like lager varieties right, right. like there's so much american lager being produced now let's like lean into new i know it's not mount hood or willamette <laughs> but like things that might actually be more sustainable for the grower in itself right um but that's me getting i'm gonna get down you can't hear me stepping off of my <laughs> but i have so yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. I, I like, I don't know. I I'm fascinated by the raw ingredient supply chain. I really am, and it's at it's agriculture, right? I think it comes down to my root of just loving farming, and you have to. It's constantly changing as well. It's an agricultural product. These things shift and change every year, and you have to follow what's going on and keep you on your toes. And so, why does that? Why does that mean things are always staying the same in our breweries, right? right. If if the ag world is changing and the, the ingredient is changing because it's coming out of the earth and the weather is changing, like why can't we also do the same within our breweries? Right. It it's so hard because it's like if you're if you're just a single brewer and you're trying to like 
okay, well, what kind of hops am I going to buy next year to make the beers I want to make? You don't feel like you're making that much of an impact. And each person isn't making a huge impact or each brewery isn't making a huge impact, but the, the, the totality of all of them. Yeah. They're making a pretty big impact. That's my um, argument for composting and recycling <laughs> and not littering. But these people in the Midwest are like, I'm just one person. And I'm like, there's a lot of y'all stop littering, right. please. Anyway. Well, yeah, that goes <laughs> back to like the whole like hot side aeration argument and everyone's like, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect you. And I'm, I'm, I kind of treated it as always kind of like a, like like um um like global warming just because it's not you don't see the effects doesn't mean that you can't do some of the things to mitigate it in general like it just it's it's poor practice to mash to splash the crap out of your malt you know and to and have you know like how, what are these small things that we can do in, in engineering when we're building the brew house to make it you know just kind of mitigate it you know whether you believe in it or not it still exists to some degree, <laughs> you know, like, or just because it doesn't affect you that much doesn't mean that you can't make s- small steps. Um, I think that um, if you're not buying some of the, if you're moving away from, um, especially as a larger brewer, you're moving away from these lager hops that are grown in the States and you're buying a lot of German ones, are you, could you get it done with a you know like there, there's a lot there's a lot to be said there because like also the german hops have historically been affordable you know yeah and if we stop buying them in general like are they going to be growing as many you know with german german um and, and european i i say like germans like this the center of europe but like um, a lot of people in, in europe are drinking less and drinking less and drinking less so it's happening here too yeah, it's hap- well, yeah, it, it is, but not not to the not, same degree. Not in Ohio. <laughs> um no, not in Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> I think that you know, like um well, the industry will kind of go away if we don't support it in some no, regard. And so it, there has not, to be but, some type of I'm not by any means saying stop buying German hops, right? But right. In, in in a time where it is a very taxed part of the hop industry, like maybe some supplementation um, until they can kind of figure out how, one, I mean, weather needs to cooperate. That's the thing. Most of these farms don't really have irrigation, right? No, and when they do, right, there are some with a little bit, and even when they needed water, they weren't allowed to have the water. So, right. I mean, if these years continue to go on like this, they the, the hops won't be there anyway. Well, so maybe we should enjoy it while we got them. <laughs> I know, yeah, it's true. Use them all. Use them all. Yeah, yeah. it's it's such a complex thing because there's so many moving parts, and um, yeah. I don't know. I don't really know what the best answer is. Um, there if, is no if, best answer. If I buy a pallet of German hops for two years of brewing, how much am I really affecting the whole global chain? And I don't know. Um, I think it is if you're going to buy a bunch of really nice middle fruit and then um, dry hop it at like five pounds per barrel. I mean, like, oh, man, that sucks. (laughs) You know, like, I would much rather. It sounds very chewy. uh, It's pretty grassy. Yeah. Well, anyway. Yeah. um, It's fine. Okay. So I'm going to keep this conversation to loggers for a little bit longer. Nice. What's it like to live with one of the best lager brewers in the country? Um, well, well, 
wonderful. <laughs> um, you know, she has to do the same thing. I know. She oh, I guess she does. She, 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 she also has, has to, to live, live with, with one, one of, of the best, best blogger brewers in the country. You're, right. You know, I really love the humility in this. Um, <laughs> um yeah, you know, um Do you guys like just talk about lager all the time? When we started dating, yes, it was just that's all we <laughs> talked about. And it was funny because it was just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is so dumb. We're gonna get sick of this. And we never really do. <laughs> you know, it's like it's you got two people that are very passionate about one thing, you know, and that's what we devote a lot of our lives to because we care about it. And so yeah, we do want to talk about it all the time. And and, and also for those who don't know, we're talking about Lisa Allen of Peter Allen. Right. <laughs> uh, it's Kevin's by far better half. By far. By far. Oh, She's definitely ouch. easier on the eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and if you've never had Heater Allen beer, you should definitely seek it out because it's exceptionally good. Um, but no, I love it. Like two lager brewers in love. Right. Ador it's, it's adorable. It's, it's so adorable. adorable. <laughs> and I know it's old news, but I remember when I found it, I was like, oh, yeah, that works. That works. That works. Um, yeah, you know, you know, not a lot of people know this, but we went to middle school and high school together. That's so and, weird. I didn't and know we that. didn't know each other. Like uh, I played football against her brother in like peewee football. And <laughs> I went and found like an old yearbook at my mom's house. And I had like made I took his picture and I'd made it into a Frankenstein. <laughs> Apparently I didn't like him. I don't remember doing this, but um, <laughs> sorry, Jeff. Uh but yeah, it you know, like uh I moved back down to, so like when I was 18, I moved to Seattle, uh, because I wanted to get the heck out of suburban Portland and, um, and get away from my family. Honestly. I mean, I love my family, but I needed to fly. I need to go I get else. it. I get and it. And then moving back for Wayfinder, um, I met Rick and he's like, you're from Twalton? My daughter Lisa went to Twalton. And then we, you know, we hit it off after that because we know like all the same people and we have a very similar lived experience. So that's been fun. Yeah. Um, yeah, Lisa's great. We have a lot of same in interests. Um, when we are hanging out, we're, we when we are hanging out in McMinnville, we do a lot of craft beer drinking at our local beer place. That's like our, it's called the Bitter Monk. It's our friend's uh, beer bar. And uh, that's kind of our home, <laughs> home away from home because we- Do you just sit there and like tear apart people's beer together? We, um, you know, if you ask- uh, Becky, the bar manager there, she's like, you guys mainly drink your own beer. Um, oh, shit. <laughs> which is crappy. <laughs> I'm I'm constantly, so my goal whenever I go there is I want to find IPAs that are from really, and they bring in a lot of great beer. And I really wanted to like, I'm trying to use this time to be, get up on like new things. I'm like, oh man, this guy's using the new, what's Nectar on all about? Let's see what this is, you know, and how, how do they use Nelson? This is great. Um, but you know, pint for pint, you know, we just want to drink lager beers and, 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 uh, yeah, we drink our own beers a lot. We, we bring our own beers home, but usually when we're at home, um, right now is almost star magnolia time, which there's a star magnolia tree in our backyard. And right around March is when the sun starts setting in front of it and it blossoms and we drink rosé and stare at it. And that's, that's our life. I'm going to take that as my invitation. Yep, come down. Do the same. I know I've been <laughs> invited before, but this is a very specific experience that I would like <laughs> to share with you guys. So that sounds fantastic. I'll see you maybe in March, maybe not this March, maybe next March. But right. Um, cool. I only have uh, well, I have a couple more questions for you. 
Yeah. Every time I see you, you have a different pipe. Kevin is a pipe smoker. <laughs> What's yeah. your favorite kind of pipe and why? It's like kind of me asking. It's like what Barbara Walters would say. If you were a tree, what kind of tree would you be? My right. question to you is, if, if you were a pipe, what kind of pipe would that be, Kevin? I don't know. I've never, <laughs> what kind of pipe? Uh, yeah. I have so much different personality. They're, uh, <laughs> they're, it's kind of like a collector dorky thing it's so freaking dorky and uh it is very very much so (laughs) and i don't know why i i like it so much but i do and here i am um um right now i'm smoking a canadian style um pipe from genod and i'm smoking some uh deluxe navy rolls so i'm having you explain what makes it a canadian style pipe it's actually just the shape of the cut they 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 actually um they pipe makers name all the different styles of how they're shapes and okay. this is specifically a canadian maybe because it's long and it looks like a piece of timber and they assume all canadians are bloggers i have no idea but it's uh, it fits well in my mouth and i like it so there you go well i am a canadian and i am not long and shaped like timber so i think <laughs> they should really go back to the drawing table on right. the branding of that pipe but that's okay um, and then, yeah, I just have one last question for you. We don't have to dig too deep because I'm pretty sure we're running out of time at this point. Um, but can we just like talk about what's coming next for you? I know you're you're kind of sun, you know, sundowning at at Wayfinder. I, I can only assume you're going to be taking a little bit of time off because that's just what brewers do after they start projects. And right. but you know, what else is what else is going on? Well, I you know I haven't really. So like, like I said, when I turned 18, I moved to Seattle. I never went to college and I've never really taken any time off. I turned 18 and I was a maintenance guy and then I was a plumber and I've just been, you know, kind of a working class um, fella this, this whole time. And I've never really like taken time to really explore like, well, who am I and what do I want to do? So I'm kind of looking forward to doing some of that. And it's not really fun to talk about, but um, yeah, I just need a little time, you know, honestly, and it's uh, uh, maybe the pandemic just totally screwed with my total mental health. <laughs> I just need to get away for a little while, but I think um, it did that to a lot of us. Right, it's a very um, stressful time to run a brewery. Right, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a. It's a very stressful time to run a brewery, <laughs> and um, luckily we had. I think honestly the pandemic was almost better for Wayfinder. A lot of things that we wanted to do, it forced us to do them. We really wanted to get it in cans and do more labels and do more releases. And because we opened up and we were a restaurant and we had to kind of just make like six beers a lot and we didn't want to do that. And um, um, so the pandemic really helped us there. But that being said, it was very taxing to come up with new things all the time and constantly like doing all these projections. And um, I'm also a little I'm hard to manage as an individual. I need to be my own boss. It's really what I've I have I've done some soul searching just within Wayfinder and I just need to I need to, you know, kind of do my own thing. And I think that that is part of a big part of uh what I'm gonna do afterward is I want to launch my own brand. Um well, great. Yeah. And yeah. Y'all get excited. Keep us abreast of that sort of stuff. Yeah, I know. I'm sure it is. I'm always excited when um, brewers that I love make these beers that I truly appreciate go out and like do their own thing because I end up loving what they do even more. 
Right. So, I mean, yeah. I'm upset that I probably won't be able to buy your beer in Northern Kentucky or Ohio, but that's not to say I won't travel for it. So, right. Well, you know, we'll, we'll illegally ship you some cans or something. I love it. Perfect. No, maybe not illegally, but <laughs> we'll, we'll make sure that you sign the UPS thing, but that's we'll, it. <laughs> we'll make it, we'll make it legal. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. Well, I really appreciate you taking this time out of your day of soul searching to talk to me. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Oh, no, I had a great time. Okay, good. Um, and just so you know, Kevin will be back on the next episode of the show as the host, having a conversation with a brewer of his choosing, right? right? Yes. Um, that, that'll be on the air in two weeks, so make sure you tune in for that. Uh, visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media to support journalism in the beer space. Check out Patreon slash patreon.com slash all about beer. Um, do you have any final words? Um, geez, I want to say keep lager cool, everyone. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> keep your beer cold in general. Keep, keep your beer cold in general. Yeah. yeah. No. Um, but yeah, I think that it, it was weird because when, when I got into beer, lager was just so ho-hum and nobody really wanted to do it and it was kind of dorky and now i'm just so excited that everybody's celebrating it and enjoying it and i would i if i could tell everyone one thing and i know i'm just talking mainly to brewers but um enjoy high quality beer and just a little bit less of it <laughs> spend cool. more money and just drink, don't drink as much. <laughs> all right well i think that's a good note to end on um thanks kevin thank you uh, and I'm Alexandra Knoll of CLS Farms. Thank you for listening to the Brewer to Brewer podcast. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Discover the advantage of using new and unique ingredients like lemon myrtle or lapsang shushan. First Tea has been working with brewers to introduce distinctive, high-quality botanicals for innovative craft beers. They focus on being direct, flexible, and fast. You can find more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting blog.firsttea.com. That's blog.firsttea.com.